0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, more than 500 episodes and counting. Your support is most appreciated. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod okay thanks you are not alone you have
1: found other people you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
1: i think it's really beautiful jake stated what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host Brad
0: Listy, just one person, at just and one. So, time. hey everybody, how's it right, going? Welcome right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, back with another uh, Sunday episode for you. I'm here in Los Angeles. I appreciate you listening. Adrian Todd Zaniga is back on the program. This is his second appearance, and uh, he is celebrating the publication of his debut novel, Collision Theory, available now from uh, Barnacle Book. It's an imprint of Rare Bird Books, a great indie here in Los Angeles collision theory available from Adrian Todd Zaniga. I'm going to be talking to him in just a second. It was good to catch up with him. I've known him for a lot of years now and uh, happy to see him having this publication success. Before I get there, I want to do something that I've never done and I feel a little bit remiss in having never done it. I want to thank the people or at least some of the people who support this show. I have sent written thank yous in the past to supporters, but in the daily you know, flow of life, I can sometimes overlook when people are supporting the show on Patreon, and I just want to take a second to read some names, if you don't mind, if you will indulge me, to share uh, some thanks with those who uh, support this weird endeavor. I work hard on this show, and I, I really deeply appreciate it when people who enjoy what I do support what I do. So, Justin Chia, thank you. Eva Hagberg, Brent Ryden, Sean Drury, Kristen Daniels, Gina Fattori, Tyler Darnell, Scott McCauley, Andrew Higgins, Rebecca McGill, LaDain Nasseri, Bridget Driller, Eliza Schrader, Emily Bell. James Daniel Bennett, Sarah Van Beckham, Christopher Ball, Sean Liu, Asdrin Coma, David Greenspan, Pedram Mobedi, Jenny Hill, Jeffrey Little, Nina Mamakunian, Thomas Michael Duncan, Tyler Barton, Rebecca Hasse, Glenn Deitz, Jeffrey Ricker, Rachel Williams, Will Macken, recently a guest on this program. Thank you, Will. Andres Crump. C.L. Jew, also a guest. Stephanie Austin. J.P. Kelly. Liam Harkin. Molly Bradbury. Kim Winter Mako. Somebody named Jonathan. <laughs> no last name. Christopher Gronland, Rachel Newcomb, Philip Shaw, Roxanne Gay. Been on the show a couple times. Thank you, Roxanne. So generous to just about everybody, it seems like. Leah Dietrich, an author. She's got a book coming out, old pal of mine. Thank you, Leah. Amy Kitchens. Patrick O'Flaherty. My apologies if I missed anybody, but I just want to say those people's names. Thank you to everybody who has supported the show over the years. I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, am I using this as as a way of trying to get other listeners to support the show? Not really, but kind of. I don't know. I really just wanted to thank everybody. It's not like a passive-aggressive thing. I know that whether, you know, what you support and where you put your money... Is a personal thing. And I don't begrudge people who listen and who can't swing a donation. I do. I understand. You know, it's it's not like I'm expecting perfection. But I'm just grateful to people who uh, are willing to support the show. And I wanted to say their names because they deserve it. I know I didn't get to everybody. If I didn't get to your name, it's just because I'm disorganized. And I'm like scrolling through my email trying to find the names. So thanks to all. I appreciate it. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's get to the program. Another special uh, Sunday edition of the podcast. This is Adrian Todd Zaniga. His new novel is called Collision Theory, available from rare bird books. It's a barnacle book. It's complicated. A barnacle book is the imprint of rare Rare bird books. A barnacle book. The title of the novel is Collision Theory. Here he is, folks. This is Adrian Todzaniga. I I should also mention, I can't believe I didn't say this, Adrian Todzaniga, founder, host, and creative force behind the literary death match, which I think most of you are familiar with. So now uh, he's an author of a novel. It's called Collision Theory. This is Adrian Todd Zaniga.
1: I, I gotta tell you, going to award shows, like, I'd never been in anything where I don't know, like, the outcome effectively or and that I care about the outcome. And it was ner It was a roller coaster. I mean, I was just like... Sometimes you're like, oh, we gotta win. That's, this is gonna validate us. We're gonna be able we're gonna go on stage in front of Jordan peele and Greta Gerwig and they're gonna go, Oh, those guys are cool, they're funny, right, they're right, weird, let's right. try to work with them in some way. And if we don't, then nobody will ever care or whatever. And uh and so there you know, you put that pressure and then you go, Well, if we don't win, I'm who wait, I wanna stop you. I'm glad yeah. to
0: hear you say that. Yeah. Because a lot of people I think are dishonest about that sort of shit. But yeah. you're nominated for a WGA award. It's the first time you've ever been so honored right yeah and you're in a room with all these people who are making things happen in entertainment it's natural to have that head game yeah, yeah. anybody it's sort of human right but yeah people
1: want to, i think be cool about it Or yeah something. people are kind of like oh, i'm just glad to be nominated of course we were hugely glad to be nominated and people were people i remember when it started they were like you got nominated isn't that crazy and i was like yeah but also that was our goal like when we were writing this, every scene, we were like, we got to make this better. We got to make this better. And we'd sort of be like, if we're going to get nominated for WGA, like it's got to be excellent. Like it has to be so far above anything else because it's a sports game and no would look at sports games, etc. And And uh, so, yeah. It, and then finally, when like, it was announced or like when our category is announced, you know, the tension rises. And then when we didn't win, I was like, yeah, that's fine. Like it was a funny moment to go, but be between like, this could mean everything to like, God, just announce already to like, what? And then when they announced, it's like, that's okay. And then all I cared about, uh, was the guys going up there. I wanted them to give a good speech because our speech, Who won? uh, I don't remember the name of the game, but it's, uh, a, a game. Okay. I was like, they're yeah. dead. They're dead to you anyway. Dead to me. Fuck those people. Uh, but they talked about, uh, like why they'd written, why they, what they'd written and it had to do with like empowering women and about mothers and like these journeys we go on. So I was like, okay, you guys are fine. But if they would have given a bad speech, I would have been like, man, did you have a speech prepared? Yeah. I was going to thank, uh, the three Ms, which was Mike, my co-writer, my girlfriend, Morgan and my mom. And then I can't remember after that, like I had another beat that was about uh, how our oh it was about how our game was really about trying and failing and how we're in a room of people that know all about failing and we've ascended to this moment and like it's it's just great and like we just have to keep trying trying, and trying with the hope fail to, better fail better basically yeah and uh so yeah that was and then i didn't get to say it and but it
0: was funny you're talking about that like the emotional interior experience of like riding that roller coaster where it's like oh my god this could validate us we could be fancy in front of famous people and then there's the moment of the announcement and you've got this clown like <laughs> singing i mean like it Amazing. You can't get any better than uh, that yeah and was, then you uh, and then you don't win and then like fairly you know very quickly it was like it's fine yeah i think that actually encapsulates so much of human experience and life to a greater and lesser extent sometimes it takes us longer to get to the it's fine moment right, yeah but pretty much that that's pretty much everything yeah like it, it's not necessarily all fine some things really sting and right. we have certain wounds that you know we carry
1: scars but over time
0: eh, it's all fine
1: we're yeah. gonna it's like we're gonna die it's fine yeah like, and right that's i couldn't agree more and in terms of this like and it goes with writing the novel or having the novel published it's like When I go into meetings to talk to people about film scripts or TV scripts I'm working on, um, it's kind of like we got nominated for a WGA and I wrote a book. Like, that's a story that they don't need to go deeper than that to go, Okay, you can be in this room. Yeah. So really, that's the reality. Like, of course, winning, maybe that makes them that much more excited in some way. But uh, just like you throw those words out and people are like, okay, I'll listen to you. Right. So in a weird way, it's, you know, I don't know how much it all matters. It's a credential. It's a professional credential. Right. It's not, not, it's
0: not nothing, but it's not everything. Yeah, exactly. And so as this was all happening, as you were working on this uh, video game script and then having success with it and getting nominated, uh, I know that you, because we talked about this the last time you were on the show. Uh, that you've been working on this novel for, what, 13 years? 13 years. 13 years. and it's An a, easy
1: 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> a soft <right>.
0: 13. <laughs> yeah. But I can relate. I mean, I've been working on the same book for way too long, and uh, sometimes these things have uh, a considerable gestation. Yeah. So where were you in the process with collision theory over the past year? Like when were you done with it, and then— how long did it take from that point to find a publisher? And then what, what was the lag between finding the publisher and then
1: where we are now? Yeah, the, um, I would say the period of time when I was writing the video game, like once we had sort of gotten to where we're in the hard edits of it, that's when I was sort of vanishing, um, on that a little bit for a day at a time and just working on my book and just really editing it. And I would say, so it took 13 years from the very first sentence I wrote, and it took me nine months to write. Then I would say about nine months to edit, got an agent. He tried to sell it. Nobody wanted it. Uh, and then yeah, I wrote another book and he was like, eh, maybe we're not the right fit. I'm like, that's fine. Um, then I went agentless for a while and that sort of made me feel free to to edit it and just write wildly or do whatever I was doing with it. And so that process of rewriting it sort of happened every two or three years where I'd just be like, you know what? I, I got to go back to this because I think it's good enough. And so I kept going back to it. And then uh, while writing the video game, which I guess was 2016, does that sound right? 2015, the end of 2015. um, I was writing, uh, is that right? Maybe. uh, Yeah, let's say 2015. If I'm wrong on the date, really, nobody will care. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, during that time, I did what I felt like was a final hardcore edit because I was like, you know what? No more bullshit. You're not going to keep going back to this. You are going to do an edit. And then you have contacts through literary Deathmatch. I have contacts to every author basically that that has done the show. And I can just ask them to, if I can send to their agent and most people are very kind about that. Cause they're like, yeah, yeah, you hustle around the world. I'll help you out. And, uh, so I've sent it to all these agents and, uh, and I had another book too, that I was like, I pitched them both. And I said, if you want to read either of these, like here's sort of the log line and, and people asked for different ones. But, um, but everybody inevitably said no. And it it was an interesting process for me because I would get these love letters that were just extraordinary. And they're like, Oh my God, the writing is this and that. And And then the last sentence would be like, but I don't feel like I'm the person to represent this. I know. I know. And it, and I I said to somebody recently, I was like, the the acceptance notes are like two sentences long. Like, I love this. I want to represent it. Bang. The rejections are when they like, they pour it on. And they—they
0: they, you think they, they have form letters? I always wonder about that. They have they, to have like a form or J. They copy, they change some things out. Right. And, send and it. then, the,
1: yeah, the writing is extraordinary and you've got a really blah, 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 but, you know, and then there's just a huge butt, and then it's blank after that and they can just put whatever. It's, or maybe that's all It's really
0: hard to sell literary fiction. Oh, yeah. And I think that... A lot of agents just get very, very wobbly about it. Yeah. You know, they got to really know. Yeah. They have to be
1: like, this is going to be
0: big. Or, yeah, but it's also like, just this is going to succeed in the marketplace. Like, not that it's going to be some huge, great bestseller, but like, I think that what a lot of writers need to remember is that agents are people too. And for them to go on the roller coaster with you and to have it not work, it's painful for them too. Right, yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. It's a lot of work, one thing. Yeah. But it's also emotionally, that's their livelihood. That's their profession. That's what they're supposed to be able to do. Yeah. And so I think that once they get stung a few times and they have to break the bad news to an author, they have to dissolve the relationship or, you know,
1: it's like, who wants to go back for more of that unless they really feel like they can do it, so. Right, and I think it's almost like, Like writing in a way that and this is the my position on writing is it doesn't matter what happens after I finish, as long as I really believe in the work I've done and I'm proud of the work after that last like closing of the file. If I'm like, Yes, that is awesome. That never goes anywhere, it's not my fault. Like I've done everything I can. And so maybe that like if you love something as an agent enough, they go into the world and they're like, I love this so much. If nobody wants it, then fine, but I believe in it. And it like softens the wound of not success. But yeah, it was, it was interesting because nobody wanted my book and I was like, Oh wow, what does this mean? Like, I don't think it's over for me as a writer, but I was just like, what, what does this mean? And then, um, my friend had sent it to his agent. And so I went to do literary death and, and the agent had come and he's like, Hey, I just wanted to say, I, I, I want to know if you got my email. And I was like, I didn't get an email. Uh, sorry. And he goes, well, I think your book is virtuosic and I want to represent it. And I was like, oh, wow. And and I checked my email and it was in the spam, of course. Right. And the, one, uh, the one guy who thinks you're a virtuoso goes to spam. Right. <laughs> and it was, a, I remember that moment very well because he had said that. And then I checked the email sort of in like this excited panic almost right in front of him. He's like, oh, here it is. And then he's like, well, let's talk about it more. And I was like, yeah, Fantastic and i sort of went towards the green room and i was like fuck yeah it's virtuosic like i worked 13 years or i guess at that point 11 12 years to get it to that point and i believed in it And the writing the style the writing is very important to how the story is told and i was like yeah all these other people it's fine they didn't want it it's not for them it's not for them but like yes like i wrote this thing and in fact i think that was quite an important moment in my life as a creative. Cause I was like, I've been accepted in the way that I believed I was, you know, like, yes, it's virtuosic if it never sells, whatever, but at least. Yeah. So then, um, then he shopped it around. Uh, none of the major people wanted it, which I was like, oh man, you know, you always want to be like, oh yeah, they're going to give you the billion dollar, but adv- you're the next Lena Dunham. Right. <laughs> totally not, but in a different way. Um, but then rare bird, uh, in a similar fashion, like, uh, Tyson Cornell came to Literary Deathmatch after the show. He was like, Hey, we want to publish your book. And I was like, Great. <laughs> like yeah. fantastic. And um and for a moment I was like, Is that what I want? Like, I mean, don't some some big I was like, no, like these these guys want it. Like my agent wanted it. These guys want it. This is amazing. Like well, what an incredible thing. Well, a couple of things I want to say. First of all is um, I think someone
0: said this to me when I was looking for an agent and I never forgot it. And I think it's worth repeating because it was really good advice is, uh, follow the enthusiasm.
1: Absolutely. Because
0: yeah. if somebody's truly enthusiastic about you and your work and they believe and they really, like it really resonates with them, then when there is uh, resistance in the marketplace, they're going to keep fighting. Right. If things don't go well, they're going to stick with you. Yeah. Um, and, and same thing with a publisher, you know, they're going to hopefully go the extra mile in terms of trying to get the word out and they're going to do a, a, an extra good job of, of publishing it and designing it and all those kinds of things. You've got to follow the love yeah, yeah, and, you know, go through those doors. yeah. And then the second thing is a question, uh, you know, for a book that goes through what I would, ima- would imagine is multiple iterations. There had to have been wholesale changes along the way, yeah, yeah. um, over 13 years there had to have been fallow periods where you weren't working on it much. Right. All those things.
1: How do you finally get to the point where you go, you know what? I'm done. Uh, great question. Uh, cause yeah, if it's 13 years, you're going places. And, um, I think for me is I had a sense, I think in the, in the late stage of it, well, let me say this about publishing short fiction is every short fiction piece I've ever submitted. Um, you know, you write the short story. I have this process of like, you give it a day, then you reread it and you edit. And then three days, a week, three weeks, a month, three months. And then it's kind of, then I'm ready to submit it. That's always been my system with short fiction. And, um, and that sort of is the idea that you sort of can forget about it or you're like fresh with, with it, you know, whatever that process is, that's how I've done it. And I've always noticed that when I submit it the day before I submit it, if I give it a read and and I'm reading it as if someone else is going to read it, that has that's one final edit that has quite a profound effect on the on how i you know wh- where the story goes and i think for me with the uh with the book i was kind of like okay this is the best i can do plus i'm reading it from that perspective of like what else you know what am i going to see because i definitely remember when i first submitted it i knew there were problems i don't know if it was a logic issue now it's been a long time but i knew there were problems and i was like well maybe no one will notice <laughs> which is a fucking insane thought. And it's always like the first thing they notice. Yeah, of it's course. Like, yeah. Cause like, especially if you get it, your hope that it would sell thousands of copies, if a thousand people read it, they're going to fucking notice. Like what a crazy thing. Um, so trying to like really lock down the logic of the book. And I didn't know I was writing a book that was a mystery, but in fact, like it, unravels unravels slowly. Like you start to see a widening lens until you see the, the totality of what Is happening in the book. And I was like, I, I just had to really be relentless with myself and just not let myself off the hook at all. And then I edited it that final time. Uh, and then that was the one that got accepted. But then I went through two edits with Seth, Seth Fisher, um, as my editor under the rare bird, you know, thing like they're okay. We've got this guy for you. And that, I would say the book probably changed 25 to 30% in those final two edits, which sounds insane to me. Like, but, he was able to then say he was just pressing on different logic points. And like, you know, the first chapter was third person and there was a second person chapter and then a third person chapter. And he's like, let's not do that. You know, can, and, and the second person chapter, I was like, there's absolutely no way I would change this from second person. It does. Every, it does exactly what I'm trying to do and exactly the way I want. And I think by the end, I even changed that, but I was at a reading in, um in uh, Austin and uh, I, I just read the first chapter of the book when I do readings cause it's a page and a half and it sort of sets up the entire book. And the guy was like, Oh, you wrote that in first person. What was that choice about? I was like, that choice was about my, about me going through all this stuff and my editor just being like, I really think you should consider. And finally I was like, yeah, of course it should definitely be first person, Yeah, but it takes, I don't know. It's crazy, right? we're We're like so dumb and we know so much and we're so smart. At the same time. You know, it's just um my mom used to say that sometimes to me it was like, you're how how can someone so smart be so dumb? That was her go-to for like quit being an idiot. Right. Uh, or a jackass. I don't know. I guess idiot's a bad term now. Uh but yeah. So I like those two edits were so profound to me and and really it was draining because I think I spent three to five weeks on each of those edits. And, and this is the thing about a, an independent publisher publisher. That's interesting is just the timeline is a little bit more squeezed. They're like, all right, let's, let's go. Like, let's get the editor and like, send us a list of these things about you. And, you know, this author profile and, and let's get blurbs and whatever. And I'm just like, oh my God, like I literally, I'm trying to fix like this four sentence part of the book that the entire book might rely on. <laughs> In terms, so that was an interesting process. But finally, when I broke through that uh, I was like, yeah, I, I got it. Like, you did it. it was just awesome. You had to have felt like you've done everything you possibly could. Oh yeah. At some point
0: you got to walk away. Yeah. 13 years. Yeah. Full edit. I'm sure your agent weighed into,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. You, know, you had friends read, you know, whatever. Yeah. So you, it's not like you, this book was rushed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I will say like my girlfriend who I've been dating two and a half years now, she, uh, she's a huge reader and she's relentless with me and my work in a way that is kind of interesting. She's just the sweetest human on earth. But like, when it comes to my work, she's like, no motherfucker, you're going (laughs) to like, she just sort of, she, she holds me to the fire. And, uh, like having her plus Seth was really important because there were some things I was like, God, I'm, I like really don't know. Like, I don't know about this change. So I guess I'll make it, you know? And she's like, no, you cannot make that change. Like 10% of that change you cannot make. You can make 90%, but like, can't change this word. Cause it ties into the little bit. And I was like, Oh wow. Thank God. <laughs> so I, I've, I think I'm like a relatively creative person, but I am, I totally trust collaboration. And you know, the fact that I say like 30% of my book was rewritten means to me in some way, like I wrote 70% and 30% was other people. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Like, well, uh, but I think most authors
0: want to be edited.
1: Yeah, or at least are amenable they to the should, process. Right. There are some authors,
0: you know, who maybe feel like they know best and they don't want anybody to fuck with their stuff. Right. But most people I I know who do this, provided that the editor in question is uh, good at what they do and is really invested and yeah. isn't making like you know offhand suggestions after a, like a, a skimming of the book. You know? Right. But if the person's really invested in it and they're giving you their thoughts, like I think most writers are receptive to that because. If you spend, I don't care if it's one year, two years, or thirteen years, on a piece of fiction, I, it's it's pretty hard not to feel like God. I am so swimming in this. I don't think I can see it clearly. Yeah. Like, w- tell me what you see. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that we can help to get some clarity about this because yeah. there's, it's just uh, it's unwieldy. There's always blind spots, and I want to say, God, it was like an interview with some famous editor, and I forget who it is, but he edited Don DeLillo. And somebody put that question to him as an editor. They said, hey, you know, have you ever had an author whose book just came in perfect? And he was like it was like one book and it was like Mao Two or whatever <laughs> by Don DeLillo. where yeah. it was like he was like, It's done. Wow. You know, God, what like, a great moment for yeah. everybody involved.
1: <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah. You know? Well like, the funny part is as a writer, like all when you submit it, you've submitted the best work you can do, I would guess largely. And all you want to hear is like, you did it. Yeah. You, it's perfect. Thank right. you. Thank you. <laughs> and the second you don't hear that, it takes a minute to be like, oh, "Fuck, there's more work to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, And yeah, there's yeah. nothing worse. Cause you, I just poured my life into this and now you're telling me there's more work. There's almost like, there should be a rule in that stuff where they take at least a week. You know, there should, there's probably a perfect amount of time that could be scientifically proven between, um, like where you can rest to hear the right and uh, to hear that it's not perfect. Plus it's not too long to where you're emailing them to be like, did, did you hate it? <laughs> there must be a, there must be a window of like a day or two. Um, maybe it's seven days away or whatever, but I would, I'd be interested in finding out that window.
0: One, one of the worst parts of, I think the creative process, but just life in general is when you're waiting for word. Yeah. When an agent <laughs> is reviewing terrible. and you're like waiting for a verdict on whether or not you're good, whether yeah. or not you're accepted, whether or not they like your soul. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to a book, especially yeah feels like such a personal evaluation. I know you have to sort of distance yourself from that. I mean, uh, it's a work of art and yeah. it's not necessary. I mean, it's you, but it's not you. And right. so you have to have some sort of mature understanding of the whole thing. But yeah, I don't know if you've put a lot of yourself into it and there's really blood on the page
1: and somebody says, sorry, yeah, it's hard not to feel that. <sighs> it's the worst. I mean... I, I thought it was interesting because every first novel, they always say it's like, oh, it's just an autobiography of sorts. And when I finished this book, I was like, oh, good, I pulled it off. This one isn't an autobiography. And then I, like, on the very, very final edit, reading it where, you know, I was making smaller tweaks, I was like, holy shit, this book is so deeply about me in a way that I didn't know. Like, it is like drawing the strings about my identity and things that are so core to my belief. I was like, wow, that's cool. Cause it's way, way under the, you know, the cover of like who I am and things like that. And that was a cool thing to discover too, which also would have probably made it personal when people go, yeah, no, no, no whatever. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, like, but I, I I'm going to stop you because I love work where I feel, I mean, I, I feel the author in everything. And I'm always looking for the author in everything that I read. Yeah, And that's part of why I do this show. Like I really, am, like I was joking with our friend Amelia Gray right. just last night where I was like, I think I want to call, like, I should have named my show. Like what's going on with you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I could read a, I could read like fantasy fiction. I'll be like, what's going on with you? Yeah. you okay. What happened to you? Yeah. You know, like, and I, so I, if I read an author, you know, cause you talk about how people sometimes say, well, first novels are always just about the author. And maybe that's true. I think there's some truth to that, but, Um, I like when, when authors like just openly, nakedly grapple with themselves on the page and it's fiction. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's my jam in a way, or if I can really feel uh, the author, the author's presence uh, and and I can feel that the, the, what is it? Like the most important concerns that the author has are evident to me in the narrative, however distant it might be from the actual facts of the author's life. And the less of that that I feel, the less the work tends to resonate with me. Yeah, that's interesting. Because like, it makes it human. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't want, like, I was thinking about this too. Like, I was talking to a friend of mine about music, and I was like, I, th- I feel like I want my, musicians to be seers or something like I want to really feel like they have something to convey to me. Yeah. Like I like a, a good frivolous fun happy dance song or whatever right. like anybody but like really yeah. I want somebody who's like what well, like what are you telling me? Right. Like yeah, what's yeah. going on? What happened? And and I'm kind of that way with with uh books as well, you know, and um I guess that's I don't know if that makes me weird or not.
1: Yeah. No, that's I, I agree. I I think I I listen to this podcast about um it's called Script Notes and I listen to it pretty regularly. And they were talking at the beginning of this episode about return of the Jedi and how the very beginning makes no sense. And it's hysterical. I mean, I, I'm a huge star Wars fan, I, which I guess is like a negative and a positive. I don't know. It's what knows I a mythology with. of our youth. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and listening to them talk about it, I was just like, that is so funny. And then later in the podcast, they're like, this is why you don't love this movie like you know like it's fine and it you know you like it but like empire strikes back had more whatever but they were like they are they're giving you a premise that's a little goofy at the beginning or the little off and then it doesn't read all the way through and so you just like you're not connecting in the same way like i just saw um isle of dogs which is a hugely problematic film um and I just realized that like, the Wes Anderson, the Wes Anderson, th- like a lot of people liked it. You, th- you thought it's problematic. It's, I mean, if you like, uh, white saviors, if you like, um, basically suppressing women and suppressing a race and like, it's, I, I wrote one tweet about it that I was just like, it, it is, it, uh, here's, I mean, so Wes, I shouldn't I'm take sorry. my kids to see this. <laughs> I mean, kids might like it cause they won't they connect in the same way, but like the five male or the five lead dogs, are all white males. And I was like, there's, they're dogs. There's no reason why these dogs are a male and b all white. Like Brian Cranston. Sure. He is one of the greatest voices ever. And sure. I'll give you Ed Norton. Cause he has a really specific, great voice. I love Jeff Goldblum and I love his voice. It wasn't necessary. And then like the others, I was just like, no, like they're all black woman in here. Like Wanda Sykes was perfect. And I was just like, why are we not? It, it was just weird. And I think, and I know, like, I love Rushmore. It's probably one of my five favorite films of all time. I love that movie, too. Yeah, love it. And Wes Anderson, I think he's a maybe got a bit of the tweed jacket wearing, like, oh, he's you a sweet think? guy. He must love women and must love all this stuff. But then you see that the women characters in this movie are like, you know, the basic premise of it is that these dogs are like. A little disease so they put all the dogs on this island and they have to live amidst uh, amongst trash and they're scrounging for the the littlest of scraps yet there's this woman character who comes up uh played by scarlett johansson and she's gorgeous and she's like you know her her hair is not dirty these dogs are like so filthy and gross they're feral they're feral and and so all of a sudden the the woman character you know and then he asks her like if she's with this other male dog, and so the dog, the the female dogs are only good for making babies and being pretty. And I was just like, my girlfriend was outraged. Like, we walked out of that theater, and I and I said, you know, the best thing I can say about that movie is I feel nothing about it. It just was like that took an hour and forty one minutes. And she's like, wait for it. And then she started tearing into it. And I was like, oh yeah. And all this stuff emerged. And it is fascinating to be like a white male watching something and being like,
0: eh. Well, the but- Wes Anderson films, like, are. So white, it's like one they of the, wh- so it's like one of the whitest things to like, you know, it's like what white people like is yeah, Wes yeah. Anderson films. And, uh, so I can feel like I've had arguments on Twitter or like, you know, exchanges on Twitter where I'll say like, oh, you know, I'm watching Tenenbaums on HBO and I love that film. It yeah. makes me laugh. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I will, in the defense of those films and my love for those films, I will say, yes, they're white. Yes, they come from a place of privilege. Any guy who writes Rushmore, yeah, yeah. If, you know, if you know the terrain of, like, Tony private schools in right. the Houston suburbs, then, you know, you're obviously coming from a place of privilege. But I think at their best, they feel like a critique, a right. funny, knowing, uh, biting critique of whiteness yeah, yeah. and privilege. And then maybe at their worst, it's like a bunch of dogs
1: just objectifying the Scarlett Johansson dog. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. But but to get back to the larger point, is like that threat. You when something is wrong, you don't always. You can't always deeply feel why you don't connect, and maybe you like it, but you don't connect. And I think what we're talking about this idea of the author putting themselves into it. Like, I mean, I I'm an event evangelizer. I don't know what I'm saying for that. I don't want to be classified as an in- evangelical. I actually think of goodness in the world, but no, that's a horrible thing to say. You can edit that out or not, but Trump, <laughs> Trump evangelicals, that's what I'll say are not my favorite people. Um, but, uh, the power by Naomi, Naomi Alderman is just like such an extraordinary book to me. Have you read that one? No, oh, it's awesome. Wait, it's I, fiction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, that's, it, sa- it
0: sounds like a uh, self-help almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But in it's a, not in a way. Well, the, the basis of the book is that women at the age of 15 start in their collarbones, start developing schemes of electricity. And what that means is that they can actually like shock men to like repel them if they're being attacked or whatever, or they can put their hand on the temple and actually kill the man. So the power it's called the power, but it basically shifts the power balance. So women have physical might over men. And then it is an exploration of like what happens in the world when that happens. That's a good premise. It's- Extraordinary. I mean, it really is like a handmaid's tale now. Like it's a variation. It's definitely like the
0: Hollywood got their hands on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it's going to be a TV show or a movie, but it's, it's awesome. And, um, actually speaking of that, I think that's a really interesting thing is like the lineage, like handmaid's tale, the power, like for my book, there's a short story by Mark strand that I read out of a book called flash fiction. Do you know that book with a green, it's got a green cover dorky letters say flash fiction and like this ugly image. Um, but it's got some extraordinary stories in there and there's one called space, which is about a man who goes up to a rooftop to sunbathe and he sees a woman who's about to kill herself. And then he like objectifies her and there's a very sexualized thing. And then she jumps and the (laughs) opening chapter of my novel is about a guy who goes up to the roof to take a breath to, to like settle down a little bit. And he sees a woman who's about to jump and kill herself and he invites her to dinner and invites her to travel the world. Um, and, she jumps so uh like that lineage or like i feel like talk about a rejection yeah exactly yeah <laughs> she thought swiped left was uh, right yeah this is the real um but yeah that idea of lineage and like i would say like edgar carrot and george saunders and and dave eggers like these people that have funneled into my into my writing and now I, i'm excited by that lineage shifting to like ta Coates and margaret atwood and things like that because when you grew up did you read Predominantly white men. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's how I grew up. So I remember this moment of reading David Sedaris and then finding out he was gay and being like, oh, what do I do with that? Like, I don't, I don't know. And looking back at that, it's so embarrassing to me because it's like, what to do with that is like, well, let's find out what this is about, you know? And like, this person has a different experience. So let's find out what they have to say. And, Yeah. And maturity is a fascinating thing, especially over writing a book for 13 years, like elevating to be capable of doing the thing that you were trying to do in the first place. By becoming
0: a better reader too,
1: becoming a better reader, becoming a better person, or just like coming in touch with like why you're doing it. Or I don't know. It's maturity is like one of my favorite things. I'm very excited about maturing.
0: Yeah, I'm trying. (laughs) I know it's an ongoing process. And I think too, like in the same breath as reading, uh, books by different, uh, voices, whether it's a gay author or it's an author of color, it's a woman, uh, international authors. Yeah, yeah. It's also important, I find, to like. It's like, wow, not only did I read a lot of white dudes, but I read a lot of white American. Yeah, dudes. exactly. Which you know, human beings are tribal, and we like to see ourselves reflected in art. And I think there's something natural about maybe gravitating uh, gravitating towards those kinds of books. Yeah. But, yeah. Like you say, as you mature you realize that wow, it's a you're actually a much richer experience if you're getting a variety of perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I wanted to talk too, before I forget, yeah. Uh I wanted to ask you along the same lines of uh the Wes Anderson thing and the Isle of Dogs and how you feel like wow, this movie had these incredible blind spots, um, and was offensive potentially. Uh, you know, like whether it was an intentional or just accidental. yeah. yeah. That's a question that interests me because yeah. You know, I think about it a lot when I think in the context of, like, Twitter rage right. or, like, these cultural outrages that happen on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a healthy process in a lot of respects where you're seeing people have a, a platform and a voice and a community and a way to draw attention to these sorts of things and to get, like, people who are in positions of privilege to have to, to, have to confront them and think about yeah, them. Yeah. But then I can also think to myself, like, is Wes Anderson, like, really? Was there malice? was there mouse or is he just blind right and did he really mean in his heart to make a sweet animated film for like kids and like kind of goofed or like but you know what i'm saying like there's a part of me that's like ah shit man we got to be a little bit like do we we condemn him is he dead to us now do you know what i'm saying i think
1: that's a i mean i think that's interesting like to give you an example of a failing in my novel that was uh luckily killed um my girlfriend when she was reading one of the later drafts of it she's like why do all the women in this book sort of? Why are they all sort of fascinated by the main character and they all want to have sex with them? And I was like, Oh god, <laughs> oh god! You're like I'm not going to write myself as an asshole. I mean, yeah, yeah. On. And I was like, And why do they all? You know, and I realized reading it from that point on, I was like, Oh, in some way, there was this wish fulfillment that the main character, me, would be adored by the people that he encountered that he wanted to adore him. And I was like, oh, that's so grim that like, I just did not see that for 10 edits, you know? Yeah. And like how embarrassing that was. (laughs) Yeah. Humbly embarrassing. And I'm like, oh man. And like one of those relationships had to maintain for the book. Like there had to be this, this, um, this relationship that went beyond friendship. But the other ones, I was like, there's no need. And even in the one that did evolve into that, I was like, there's no need for her to be like, Ooh, wow. Like he walks into a room. It's like, no, she's as suspicious or disinterested or whatever. She's like the, the fascination for her, for him by her as actually, because she thinks she knows him from a past something and she can't figure it out. Not like, Oh, I think I know you. I'm, you know, let me take out my breasts and fondle them. <laughs> like it, it was so weird and like, it's super embarrassing to, to encounter that, but but you know, I, I've known people in my past who know something, and they tell me, and they're like, "Oh, you didn't know that, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Well, you just told me, so now I know." And you're not special, thank you. But to me now, I don't write that way. You know, like I'm aware of that. And that yeah, how do how do how do male authors get better at
0: writing female or female characters, and vice versa? Like you know, you have to. I guess it takes practice. Maybe read more yeah, yeah. women authors hang hang out with some more women yeah hang out
1: (laughs) like literally talking to women about like i my new novel uh, is there's three main characters there's a black male there's a white female and there's a white male the white male honestly like that story i don't even have to think about and i sit down and i can write him and i can nail him because i know exactly what that story is um my girlfriend is has been reading along in the first act of it and she's like you got to do better at the woman like she's not and so I, I, I don't know if I just wrote her as a man or I was just trying. And, and this is very much about a feminist woman being a feminist and she's a feminist vlogger. And then she has this group of friends and they go do something. I'll talk about it next time I'm on here. Uh, but like, I was like, Oh, I, I mean, I, it was a very early draft and I know that I have to do better, but I was, you know, she's like, no, you get like, these aren't, this is not a three dimensional character. And I was like, I, I was like, Oh shit. Like, it will be. I'm confident in that. But, like, maybe the, you know, maybe the white guy I get at like 98%, you know, the first draft in terms of what I'm going to do. Black guy I hope to get like 70, 80%. Maybe the woman is only at 50%. And maybe um, that's going to be the, the hardest thing for me to, to pull off, which I would have thought maybe was the black character. But I'm like, no, I think it's like the woman is going to be tougher because the black character is a guy. Is so a guy. you share the gender. Right. At least. And so, like, and in, in what I'm doing with him, I feel very confident in like the large part of it, you know, but I also am recognizing that there's sensitive, se- the sensitivity readers out there and which I'm going to use for this book. Cause I gotta, like, I gotta nail this. Like I can't, I can't have that. But I, you
0: know what, no matter what you do, somebody, when you try to step outside of your own little right. channel, cause that's the thing, it's like yeah. quit writing books about white dudes and then you try it and they're like. What right do you have to write? Yeah, yeah. You know this Which, character, and it's like, well, wait, like, you know, I'm, I do not know. You got to do your best, and then you got to just accept the fact that not everybody's going to love it, right? Which is the case, I guess, with any book.
1: And but. that's the thing. Like, I think doing your best is, to me, I, I think in the old days we would just do it, and we'd be like, well, I tried. Why are you mad at me? And now I think we have a, a deeper system and an understanding. And also, there are people writing this stuff that we go, oh, I love this author. He's doing incredible stuff. A, I'm going to read him. B, I'm going to talk to them about it and like say, Hey, these are the processes of what I'm doing. Like, how does this read? And maybe, you know, throw some money at them and have them read it to get their take on it. Um, and it and- should also be said that it should, like authors should be pushing themselves, I
0: think to imaginatively explore the lives of. Of characters who are not like them. Absolutely. Like that's a, that's a, that's a worthy creative exercise for the author, but then if they execute well,
1: that's also going to be an enriching experience for the
0: reader. So like, what, like, yeah, yeah. that should be applauded, you know, like, go
1: for it. Yeah. And I, and I'm recognizing that I'm a white dude, but there are stories that I have to tell that are beyond me. And, and that telling is twofold. It's that like, oh, I know this will be a good idea and B the research I've done for this book is just so far beyond Anything I've ever done in terms of research. And also, just that it's a true education in a way that I'm just like horrified all the time at what I'm learning and also what I didn't know. And like growing up, I'm 43 now and like growing up as a white dude in America, and everybody's like, check your privilege. And when you're young, you're like, oh no, I'm not. And then you get older and you're like, oh wait, there's something weird going on. And now I'm at this stage, especially with this book that I'm writing, I'm like, oh, it's bad. (laughs) Like there's, and Donald Trump for all his greatness, I'm kidding. Um, I do think that he is, he's clearly the worst president I hope we'll ever have. Um, but like his, I, I think there might be a positive in his presidency, which is he's going to open up people to do the things to, to recognize the world as it is. And my dream for America because of him is that we can stop, being the America we say we are and actually be that America, um, live up to our ideals, live up to our ideals. Cause we do not, um, which is a bummer. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so the we're a, we're an emotionally factor. unhealthy country, we are definitely an emotionally unhealthy country. Very much so. Like it is frightening to me how we, how we don't, if we say it and it sounds good, then we go with that. And Donald Trump is more than anyone. He just says it and it sounds good. So that's what he, like, that's what I'm going to say that day. Cause it sounds good. Create your own reality. Create your own reality. But you
0: know, the create your own reality thing that existed. I mean, that exists to a certain extent in, in any political context, but I distinctly remember, um, like when George W. Bush was president and his communications team was like, you know, we create our own reality <laughs> when they were, I think it was when there was like Iraq war pushback and oh, stuff yeah. like that. And people were like, Hey, the facts aren't matching up. And they're like, well, we, you know. So, I, I guess, like, if we're going to continue or extend the analogy uh, about America being emotionally unhealthy and, and needing therapy, like, I recall back when in the early days of Bush's presidency, like, sort of joking with a friend where I was like, you know, America's going to eventually have like a Tony Robbins president where, um, you know just to use him as like a placeholder yeah, yeah. where like we're going to eventually going to need like a, a self-help guru therapist who's going to ascend because we're going to be so emotionally damaged as right. a people yeah, yeah like so economically fucked and like you know um war tired and traumatized and everything else you're going to need somebody who's going to know how to actually like therapeutically talk us out of it or whatever yeah, yeah and then uh obama became president and i remember saying to the same friend i was like so this is the guy you know, this, like he's essentially performing that function. I thought he was the salve on the wound of the Bush presidency, which uh, I think we are forgetting was really fucking terrible. Yeah. And it like, was. seemed to me like the nadir. Is that right. the way you pronounce that? Yeah. Nader? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seemed like the bottom point and it, the, I was way wrong. Yeah. And we're actually falling farther. And so now it's like the next analogy that, that comes to mind is like, so America's like an addict and like, we just haven't hit bottom yet. And like, is this bottom? It's like a really messy, yeah, you know, hitting bottom. And like, are we going to survive hitting bottom? Because not all yeah. addicts do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's like, we're addicted to consumerism. We're addicted to uh, toxic media. We're tribalized. We're all these different things. And you wonder, um, you know, because it, the, there is such a thing as redemption. There is such a thing as recovery. There is such a thing as getting healthy again. Yeah. And sometimes it does take really painful experiences to, uh, transform. Yeah. And you'll wonder like, wow, how much farther do we have to fall?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, basically this could be a a net positive if there's not any mass, like bombs going off, you know, if like nukes don't start shooting out of our country (laughs) or at our country and it's like, Oh man, that's like, we have to live in the grip of that reality. Like as he becomes less and less viable, even for the Republicans to attach themselves to like, is there going to be a moment? And, and what does that mean? And what, I mean, I think in terms of writing, like I'm expanding my, my scope and my capacity to write things because I'm it's in reaction to this. I remember when the night he got elected, I turned to my best friend who I'd written long shot with. And I said, man, in the next four years, there's going to be some amazing art made and I didn't know I was going to write the book I'm writing, but I'm writing it the new I'm, one, the new one. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, I
0: think people have, like, that's one of the healthier reactions you can have to all this
1: is to go make art. Yeah. To go read, well, that, get I yourself also, away from the news a little bit. Yeah. And it is interesting to like decide what is my place in this in terms of going forward? Like, could I be a politician? I'm a pretty good public speaker, but should I be a politician or should I be tweeting all the time or should I be writing articles for the newspaper or medium or whatever? I'm like, you know, my, my strength is twofold and I can write. And so that's why I'm writing this book, this new book, and I can perform literary death match. And we've, the way we book the show since he's become president has been very, reactionary to him and what he's done. And uh, you...
0: Yeah. I feel the same way about this show. Yeah, yeah, Like I'm having people on who are either, I mean, I'm either talking about it with you, yeah. you know, even though like, uh, ostensibly you're here to promote your novel. It's happening. Um, but I do this with everybody, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, I also have writers who have written, like I just had Steve Almond on, Yeah, yeah. he oh, like, yeah. has explicitly written yeah. uh, a book about what happened or how this happened. Right. And so I think it's important. I think it's important to have that dialogue. I'm glad to hear you say that you've actually considered running for office. Yeah. I said the same thing to Steve. Yeah. I think I would love to see, like I think of Václav Havel in, uh, in the Czech Republic. Right. You know, he was a writer. Yeah. He was a political dissident. He became a head of state. Um, I think of Aung San Suu Kyi in uh, Burma, you know, she's like a Nobel winner or Nobel, I think she's a Nobel laureate. And right. there, there was an article in The New Yorker that actually with this, with this, um, God, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck up the facts of it. But there's been like an ethnic cleansing yeah, yeah. on her watch that yeah. is, that is not no bueno. No, and there was a profile <laughs> in the New Yorker that sort of soured me on her a little bit where I was like, Oh, yeah. like maybe we've all been uh, hoodwinked. But there's also uh, a story and I, I speak of all this stuff in Burma, um, with a limited understanding, but there was a, a story that I read where she said, uh, at the end of her house arrest, she was in house arrest for like 17 years or something. God um uh, when the military junta was in power and people and i think i don't know it was no it was no surprise to me that she decided to go into politics and become the head of state uh, or run for it or whatever but she's like yeah you know a lot of people you know since i'm sort of this uh, peace icon or whatever might be surprised by the fact that I'm going to go become a politician now because I'm going to have to make compromises and do things that are going to piss a lot of people off. Right, yeah. You cannot enter that arena, no matter how idealistic you are, no matter how clear your vision morally, without making decisions that are going to require compromise of ideals and are going to require pissing people off. Yeah. Uh, it's just impossible
1: to keep your hands clean and do that. Have you ever seen the movie Waking the Dead? It's a uh, Billy Crudup and Jennifer Connelly. And basically the he's running to be, uh, I think a congressman and she's like an idealistic, um, like nonprofit type type person. And basically it's about their relationship. And in the very beginning of the movie, she's died in a car bombing. And so the movie is both going back and telling their story. And then it's going forward in terms of, um, he starts believing she's alive again as he's running for this office. And as he gets more and more stressed as it gets, you know, closer and closer to the election, And um, it's extraordinary. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot like it, like he is really struggling and she's like, why don't you do the right thing? And he's like, I'm trying, like I, you know, and he's torn after he ends up um, in office after her death. And like her ghost is basically a huge influence on him and trying to like, maybe it's her ghost. Maybe she didn't die in the car bombing. Like it's, it's extraordinary. And actually her name in that movie is Sarah, which is the reason I named the girl Sarah in my book.
0: Maybe that's why Trump is so fucked up.
1: Maybe he's haunted by the ghost of a dead hooker or something. Yeah, that's probably. (laughs) I'm sure he has. I mean, when he says, uh, I, you know, look at me, do I need prostitutes. It's like, yeah. you're the worst. You're one of the worst men that exists. There's an interesting thing. My friend, uh, my friend Anthony had said he's British and he was like, he's like, this is a man without intellect with no intellect running the country. And then when the whole hair thing came up where he was walking up the stairs and the wind blew his hair up and, and it's just, it's a really disgusting thing. It looked like, um, Anakin Skywalker as Darth Vader and like the <laughs> wig had blown up. He's like, he is a monster. And I was like, he, like he could legitimately be satan like the way he's playing the the evangelical half and like the way he's just saying whatever he wants and acting like it's true and the way he's just quadrupling down on every bullshit thing it's a really fascinating time and yeah hopefully this growth thing happens that where we go like man who are we like I, see, I think he's on? I mean I, I, my tendency I mean I guess there is such a thing as a bad seed
0: in any like there's some dogs just right. like, but usually they've been beaten. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe yeah. they come out of the womb and they're just like bred. They're, they're hardwired to attack or be vicious or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, sometimes there are faulty wiring, like fa- there's faulty wiring in a human being. There was an article and I want to say it was in the Atlantic. It's one of the scariest things I've ever read where it's about psycho, uh, psychopaths and how parents like realize, like they have like a three-year-old and they're like, you know, one day, we looked over and our three year old was trying to stab our baby. Yeah. And we're like, what the fuck? And then, like, they go through therapy and, like, they're like, yeah, your fucking kid
1: is a psychopath. Like, yeah. It's a diagnosis. Right. And so there are, that can happen. We need to talk about Kevin. Yeah. Like, that's that sort of thing. And, like, that knowing in some way of, like, ugh. But Trump,
0: yeah. I think Trump might, uh, might be suffering from uh, a genetic folly. But I also think he's a deeply wounded person. Right. I think yeah. as a child, He did not get, uh, proper care. Yeah. And I think that he has been struggling with a feeling
1: of worthlessness or, uh, being unloved his whole life. He's been trying to fill a hole. It's, it is interesting to me on Twitter when I'm dealing with, uh, I'll just call them right-wing trolls. But, um, when I deal with people who are of uh, support of Trump, especially when they start getting crazy, I'm just like, I'm sorry, your mom didn't hug you enough. Like, Cause that's what it feels like. If you lack compassion, that's probably what happened. You, you felt jilted or your, your parents didn't do what you needed early enough. And so, which I'm not saying you're doomed. It's just like that process is hard. I mean, life is hard. <laughs> it's crazy how difficult it is to get through life, especially today where we have so many influences, so much action around us at all times. And, um, it just, like, I got lucky because I got hugged a lot as a kid, and my parents loved me, so I have this belief. But that belief has also made me dumb and idiotic in different ways. And, and like sometimes, sometimes, sometimes
0: I'm like, I was too loved. I was too coddled. Right. I had yeah. Like, I had it too easy. Like, yeah. I'm soft. Like, yeah. you know, maybe if I would have been uh, put through the ringer more. But then it's like, you know what? I, I was just actually having this argument with myself not too long ago. And I'm like, I've gone through some shit. Yeah. I got struggle. Everyone's like... Everyone does. I know people up and down the food chain... And everyone's fucking struggling, Yeah, you know? And so maybe like a little bit of that, like, Hey, listen, we're all in this together. We're all struggling. Let's be nice. Let's be, ni- you know, kinder to one another. Let's listen. Let's come to the table with some sanity. Like, can we just get some
1: sanity? Well, I, I think it was interesting there, there's this thing that was happening, I don't know, five, 10, 15 years ago where people were like, Oh, now in gym class, they're, they're doing jump rope without the rope. These kids are going to be clowns. They're going to be assholes. No, they're worthless in our society. And I was like... What do you mean they're doing jump rope without the rope? I guess they were just doing the action, but they didn't have the rope in their hands. So the the idea was that so no one would fail at jumping rope. So everybody would feel like competent or adequate in these classes. So this was like a thing that was spreading and people were coming out and being like, this is horrible. And, you know, it's all participation trophies, basically. And I remember hearing that and I was like, that sounds really stupid. But now, like, what's happening with Emma Gonzalez... And David Hogg is like, these kids are like, why are, why is everybody being a fucking asshole? (laughs) Like quit being an asshole without all the rhetoric and bullshit. Kids are getting killed in school. That's the fact that's insane. What is killing them? Guns. So like, why are we acting like guns are the most precious resource we have as a nation and when we all know the most precious resource we have is oil. It, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have to, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like that, that idea that, That this, this like, no jumping rope has turned millennials into soft people. But what if being soft is actually fine? (laughs) Like, why do we have to have somebody that's so violent? And speaking about Steve Allman with his book Against Football, that book is extraordinary because I'm a sports fan. And luckily, I've always loved baseball the most. So it's been easier to, like, reduce my football intake. Because football in the NFL, that's a pretty wild... That's a wild thing that's going on. The Colin Kaepernick stuff. The, like the workforce
0: like we talk about uh america being emotionally unhealthy yeah the nfl's
1: is a little bit sick it's the it is the perfect i don't know metaphor it's the perfect thing to match america with football yeah and its popularity with that and like baseball is not is loved anymore because it's more boring sport or whatever it's not boring it's great but it's it's just a slower burn and i will say yeah it's a much slower burn uh Nobody's going to get broken in half.
0: It's meditative. I love baseball. I have increasing appreciation for baseball. And I'm always amazed how, because, you know, 162 games in a season, that, that, that's actually, the, that's the rigor of the game. Yeah, These yeah. guys play 28 days a month yeah. for six months. They're playing constantly. That's crazy. Or whatever it is, six months, seven months. But, uh, but I'm amazed every year when you get to the postseason how even if you're just a casual fan or somebody who never watches baseball, you get down to the World Series and every pitch. Ah, it's the best.
1: It's it's the the best. best. Yeah, (laughs) I love it.
0: That and I also,
1: like, you also like World Cup soccer or Euro Cup soccer. I'm going to the World Cup this year for the first time. Oh, really? Uh, Unfortunately, it's in Russia, our mortal enemy. But uh, (laughs) they don't share our values. I'm just kidding. I'm sure it'll be great if I don't get, you know, killed or kidnapped or anything. But, um, (laughs) which I... Uh, to be totally sincere, I am nervous to go there because I'm American and because I've always been slightly afraid of Russia, just like from a value standpoint, like, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be fine. And all the Russian listeners buy my book. You're going to love it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, we're going to see France versus Australia. And I'm so sad the U.S. isn't in it because like the U.S. and the World Cup Like when we're in the World Cup as a U.S. team, watching our team play, I love it so much because it really speaks to like some deep Americanness in me. Sure,
0: like but also American participation in the world community. Yeah, exactly. Because soccer is is like the sport of the world. Yeah, like so it's like come on, let's get involved. Yeah, let's engage. Like I know we all love our like NFL teams or whatever, but like but like what about on this scale?
1: Yeah, and like the American team, we don't roll around. We get knocked down. We like. like hercules mulligan we get the fuck back up again and we we're like um we just go and go and go we're not that creative all the time but like the way we play is representative of our country it makes me so proud It's like the HBO's John Adams that taught me about something about being American in a way I'd never understood and us playing in the world cup. And when you see like Italy, they're rolling around and they're like missing their mothers. Um, and uh, (laughs) France, like they can, you, yeah, exactly. (laughs) France, like you hit them in the mouth one too many times. They just totally crumble. So like, there are these identities that go with different nations and it it fascinates me. And I'm sure somebody's going to be like, well, that seems like kind of, countryist but it you see these things play out and uh it's okay i, I mean i think it's I okay at it. the level of sport to have a little national pride yeah yeah there's
0: nothing wrong i mean you don't want to take it too far but i mean that's kind of the place for it exactly. i'd rather have it live there than live in the uh in like military exercise right. you yeah know? And,
1: and the real thing about the world cup and why i'm actually excited to go it's just the celebration of like we're in the World Cup, like Trinidad and Tobago. They're not like, we got to win, otherwise it's pointless. They're like, we made the World Cup. Let's go watch our team lose by two goals and then have the time of our life with all these people. Right, yeah. It's cool. I'm very excited about that. That's awesome. Where is it in Russia? Uh, I guess it's all over the place. Yeah, all over. We're going to Kazan, which is, um, it, it's the third city, apparently. And uh, we'll be in Moscow and St. Petersburg as well just to visit. But um, Kazan. Uh, well, that's the, interesting. I know. Yeah. The Airbnb, what an interesting time to go to Russia. Totally. Um, And
0: by by the way, who knows what the fuck's going to be going on by then? I know. Like, it really... It's it's pretty wild. Okay, so I want to stop you here. um, Because we were talking a little bit earlier about, like, what's going to happen and where is it all going to go? And, like, I don't want to be too gloom and doom. I don't want to be too conspiracy theory. I don't want to be too apocalyptic in my thinking. But if you think about it, it seems like we're coming to a head where there's going to be an existential crisis for the president of the United States, legally. And... I think also for the Republican, like Congress, like right. they're, they're going to be implicated, or at least many of them are. And so how are they going to react to that? Are there going to be enough good actors to counteract the bad actors? Yeah. The, the point that I'm trying to drive at is that it's existential. It's not just political. It's like, yeah. wow, like these people, there's jail time to be faced. Yeah, and there's yeah. like major ramifications and like the calls into question, the future existence of the party, you yeah. know, and it's viability. And so then you couple that with, well, if Trump goes down and all this stuff is exposed and there is mainstream understanding of it, like right. I think you and I and many people can grasp the, the, right. the basics of the narrative at this point, but like it takes a long time for these stories to penetrate. Yeah. Just like it took a long time for people to realize like, you know, the Iraq war was a, was based on a fucking lie. Yeah. Many of us were screaming it from the beginning. Right. And then it, but it took a couple of, now it's kind of accepted as a fact yeah, yeah. or at least like largely accepted. So you have to be patient, unfortunately, in these circumstances and let these things uh, play out a bit. But the question that I have is that if we do get to that point and if there's an existential crisis here, that would also mean that there are going to be existential ramifications for Putin and the Russian government and the oligarchs because the international community of Western democracies and major economies are going to say, you know what, fuck you. Yeah. And then these guys, once they don't have their money and they can't participate in international banking... Like, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. So my fear is that, like, how do people like Donald Trump and, you know, Vladimir Putin is a fucking murderer. Yeah. He's yeah. a bad human He's being. He's a bad dude. How does a guy like that react when confronted with an existential crisis? Right. That's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. And so, you know, like, I'm th- we got to get go bags. <laughs> they can fucking <laughs> hack the electrical grid. Yeah. Like, I don't think people fully appreciate... Like, you talk about nuclear weapons and that sort of stuff. That's terrifying. But I don't think f- people fully appreciate what a massive shutdown of the of the power grid, like, throughout America or throughout major metropolitan areas or sections of this country, what kind of chaos that would sow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it would shut down, like, your cell phone. Yeah. No lights. No fucking communication. Uh, stores. Like, where are you going to get food? Right. You know, your refrigeration is down. Like, it is a fucked—like, the— That would shut down water plants. Like, would you have water? Yeah. You know, like it it would have uh, potentially catastrophic consequences. So I don't mean to terrify anybody. but It's working. (laughs) But I think you have to think about these things.
1: Like, you have to know your enemy a little bit. Like, this is what we're up against. Right. And and that's what's fascinating about these, what you're saying about these stories not pervading the pop, like the mainstream idea of what's really happening is like, uh, Donald Trump is like pulling back on sanctions with a country that is absolutely an enemy to like democratic ideals. Right. Like that's a strong man who's like figured it out and is it may be the richest man in the world by a lot. Like Putin? what? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's and he can navigate and then he can go on TV and be like no we're the victim which is an amazing thing about what Trump does. He's always the victim. It's always you know everybody's against he's always, him.
0: And he's always got to say like this Steve Allman was telling him, he's like he's got a safe
1: space. Yeah. yeah. Nobody has a bigger safe space than Dude Donald Trump. such a snowflake. Um, and a cuck. Uh, I just think it's hilarious to call Whenever I use the word cuck on when what, I'm dealing with... What does that even mean? It means a cuckold. So it means like your wife or your girlfriend is being... Like you're watching someone else have sex with your wife or girlfriend in front of you. Oh, okay. So that's been like the right wing thing is to call us, you know, people like us cucks. And so when I use it against them, Oh my God, it's so great. Like when they start making bad points, Wait, like, so being the right wing
0: calls, like liberals cucks because yeah. they feel like they're having sex with our girlfriend in front of us.
1: Somebody is showing that we're weak and we're powerless. And we're like, you know, we're so weak that people will have sex with our girlfriend or wife in front of us. And we won't do anything except, wow. you know, waiver. I can't believe it's April, 2018. And I'm just learning with it. I've, never, oh, I, like,
0: I, I've seen the term used over and over again. I just was like, okay, no, no. some sort
1: of thing. And it's great. I love it. Cause uh, every once in a while, my girlfriend, will call me a cuck or i'll call her a cuck and it's, it always makes us laugh super hard because <laughs> it's such a dumb term and yeah. it sounds stupid anyway i love calling people when the right-wing people come at me but when i call them that like i usually get threats of violence and it's really funny like how my, they're like no wait no i've been called the thing that i created and that's what you are um i forgot it was. oh yeah the putin stuff um like th- we I don't know if it's Compromat. I don't know if he has a big business deal once he's out of the presidency, but something is going on with Russia in some way. I think it's pretty obvious, but even if it's not that obvious, like the sanction stuff, he's catering to him either because he thinks he's cool because he wants to be him, whatever it is. But Russia just has a different mentality than America. America's like mentality is ultimately like a moral goodness. And sure, we're fucking tons of people over all the time. And we need to improve on that in a significant way immediately. Like it's not, it's so insane how we behave, by the way. I don't know if you know that women don't actually have equal rights in our country, the equal rights amendment, or there's an ERA. I read about this story in the New York times earlier, and I, I need to learn more about it, but basically 36 of the States don't have it. And then like, they need two more then it'll, it can become an amendment, but people come out and like, well, if you're equal, then you won't get uh, child or you won't, uh, I don't know what the fuck. There's, there's cra- the usual crazy stuff of like, you're going to lose all your stuff if you're equal to men. It's like, no, there's, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, our country is dumb um, and really great in some ways. We're, we're always evolving. And I yeah. think like there's a difference between
0: the Russian uh, government leadership and its network of oligarchs and right. the people. I think there's probably plenty of people in, in yeah. Russia who share Basic ideals with the West, and yeah, yeah, for people
1: sure. who have democratic uh, tendencies or whatever, but um, like the, yeah and I should say that like Russia's created amazing things, and they have as many great normal people in it, but their government does some pretty sinister stuff, and yeah, I think that's like, too, on I, that
0: well, especially right now, but yeah. I think like the point that you 're making, and uh, which I would agree with is that like and you sometimes hear this because like people who are so, you know critical or if they 're american they 're self critical of our government, and they'll say, hey, listen, you know, and they 'll try to compare. Uh, like what's happening in the Russian government with with what goes down in America is like apples to apples, yeah, yeah, and that frustrates me in a way that's similar to how like, when people compare MSNBC to Fox frustrates <laughs> me, God. it's not apples to apples, yeah, like come on let's have a little nuance here, yeah uh and people but people want those kind of simple comparisons to draw, and it's just not the case tries me crazy,
1: but yeah, the idea that we are having a president who's not throwing sanctions up like legitimate. Legitimately punishing somebody or a country that can turn off our power grids. Like, it is, we're in a really scary moment in like 10 levels. And basically, the people that support Trump are just like, whatever, that's all fake news. It's like, no, we, ha- there are people who actually read and pay attention. And just because you see 10 headlines a day doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. And that's fine. You know why I know that? It's because I used to be the person that saw five headlines a day. And I was like, I'm good. I, I didn't read the news consistently. It's an, Until when? Four years ago. That's when it really turned on for you. Yeah. And I, I just was like, oh, I should be paying attention. And now I'm constantly paying attention. Like, I know all the names of all these I people. I feel like it's like
0: too fucking much. Yeah, it's too much.
1: <laughs> it's too much. And I do have to turn off for a week or 10 days at a time because I'm just like, I, I, wrestle, gotta... I wrestle with it all the time. Like, yeah.
0: how much do I need? Like, what? Like, I do feel, I think ultimately I fall on the side of um, wanting to be an engaged citizen, wanting to be informed and wanting to be a disseminator of what I consider to be, uh, fact-based news. Right. Because I I do feel like we're in a kind of war of information Yeah. you know, that's a little thing to do, but if enough of us do it, then it'll hopefully help the truth prevail. Um, but uh, you know, there is a point at which it becomes toxic and, and, uh, debilitating and just not helpful. Yeah. And like repetitive too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can easily, you can easily like spiral. So before I let you go, I want to ask now that you've published this novel, and you know, you've been servicing uh, the literary community with LDM for how many years now? 12, uh, 12 now. Yeah. yeah. So more than a decade, you've been doing Literary Deathmatch and you've been hosting it and you've been traveling the world and you've been providing a platform for authors of all stripes to get the word out about their work. And now you're an author. Like, what is it like to go up on stage as the host of LDM? with that under your belt has it changed your perspective does it uh you know will it change the way you host the show do you feel maybe like i don't know like a sense of having fun, like join the tribe like now i'm yeah. a guy with a book under his belt just yeah. like you guys here on stage
1: with me like what, what's the experience like yeah there's something in me that we that i don't think it changes anybody else but i feel weirdly legitimized like i feel like oh now i'm in this club and actually kristen O'Keefe, O'Keefe Aptowitz. I always say Aptowitz, but it's Aptowitz. Um, she's amazing. She's a poet. And we, my first panel was in San Antonio and we were on the panel together. And when she signed my book, she was, I think it was basically like, welcome to the club. And I was like, that, that like was, that felt really good. And I was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm here now. And, um, I, I don't know what it'll change in literary death match terms, except that you're constantly going to be plugging your book on. Stage. Yeah. Last night I wasn't <laughs> able to properly plug my book at the show and I was like, I need to figure out, I mean, j- basically the way I, I plug the book is, and, and this is one of the great things about doing about having a book published now. is just like the idea of support independent bookstores, like don't order from Amazon to in Amazon world. You're a zero and a one and a one and a zero and a, and every book you order is like a slash It it's doesn't mean anything to them. It's literally a machine that you're buying into and from. Whereas if you buy from an independent bookstore, like somebody legitimately either puts that in the envelope or they see that order and they go, Oh, cool. I should check this book out. Somebody Uh, is interested in more human. Yeah. It's not just some poor picker who's making $4 an hour. Exactly. And like if three or four people buy the book, they go, Oh, that, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to read that book or I'm going to put it at the front of the store or I'm going to set it next to the counter. I'm going to read it and recommend it. So it, you're in a real world. And I, I never really understood that. And like, as being uh rare bird is my publisher and being an independent publisher, like every book they sell basically tells them a, we made a right choice and B now we're going to go publish another book right. and maybe they'll take a risk on literary fiction, you know, which is the real fiction. Let's be honest now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there's there's like this whole process that I'm now part of and I'm really excited to be part of that. And it's really fun to tell people like go to indiebound.org to buy the book and that way you get it from a local bookstore instead of Amazon. Um, and of course if people order from Amazon, that's awesome too. But uh, it is, that's, that's a really cool thing. It's just to understand and to be able to say like, go to the book table. You don't have to buy anything, but I can, I can promise you. And I know this now, like when you buy a book, the authors feel like a million bucks like have them sign your book. It's awesome. You know? And there's one thing I'm doing with my books where every book I'm, I'm writing a literary fact in it and then putting hashtag collision theory. And I'm going to write that fact into another book, only one other book. And so I have all these literary facts of all craziness. And, um, so people can then at some point go online, put the fact and collision theory into the, into Twitter or Facebook and, eventually they'll come up with their match Oh, cool! and the, those two people will be connected through my book and hopefully people will get married or, um, be friends, little human collision. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> so I don't know that like, I think for me, it's like, I remember before the book was published probably three or four years ago when I was like, yeah, if the book gets published, I'm going to market it on the idea of like, am I a fraud? You've seen me on stage for nine, 10 years. And then when I actually had, when it got to the point of being published. I was like, that in my mind is like a game that I'm not playing now. Like, I love this book and I totally believe in it. It's a very fast read. Like everything is spelled right. Like I, like it's always a plus, always a plus. And so for me, I'm like, Oh, I don't need to market it on. Am I a fraud? I'm going to market it on like, buy my book. Like you, you, This is worth reading and this is a value and this is why it's a value in the society in terms of like independent bookstores and publishers. But uh yeah, that stuff's been really cool. And I think like when I go to meetings for Hollywood stuff, like it is cool to be like, oh yeah, I'm a novelist. Because they give you they you get credibility that you don't necessarily deserve. (laughs) But they're like, oh, you wrote a book. And so that kind of stuff is kind of cool. And, and you have a purple suit, and I have a purple suit. Which so there's is a, which is a huge positive. Huge, but <laughs> that's what I should mention. Um, that those two things in concert are really how you can really you know be a rocket ship in the world. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I, I, it just feels cool. Like it's it legitimately is my dream to be a published novelist and now, now my are. dream has come true so i i don't have anything else to do i have nothing else to live for
0: you're all done <laughs> yeah it's done it's over well it's good to see you man yeah it's and awesome. congratulations on the publication i appreciate you making time to come over here on your like you know one of your whirlwind like global
1: travel experiences which yeah. you're sort of known for at this it's, point it's pretty fun yeah and uh, i wish you well i mean i wish you well i'm excited to be on this again in like two and a half years i gotta get to finishing this book <laughs> I'm, I'm marking it yeah. good luck thanks
0: all right, guys. There you go. That's Adrian Todd Zaniga. His novel is called Collision Theory. It's a barnacle book, available from Rare Bird Books. Collision Theory. Go get your copy, Adrian Todd Zaniga. You can find him online at adriantoddzaniga.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at atzaniga. Check out the Literary Death Match, probably coming soon to your hometown. For all you know. It's a good time. Literary Deathmatch. You know about Literary Deathmatch, right? If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to get the app, this program has its own official app. It's free. Everything's free. The app is free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's a very elegant and enjoyable and user-friendly experience. Thanks to Kill Rock Stars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to support the show, it's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I just went off on Twitter before I started recording this. It's Friday. About this uh, ice, like talking about America and the state that we're in. I don't mean to harp on it, but how can you not? It's irresponsible not to talk about this. But I think where I'm reaching my emotional breaking point is with uh, ICE and these really cruel and uh, inhumane deportations where they're ripping kids away from their families. We are disappearing children. I feel like I have to sound the alarm. How can we be doing this? It's It's a moral abomination. We should be out in the streets fuck this corrupt administration fuck the people who are doing that shit okay have a nice day